Falling down the stairs at the age of three, young Dorothy Edie was pronounced dead. It wasn't until her physician returned from delivering the tragic news to her parents that he found her sitting on her bed, playing with her toys. It was from this point that Dorothy began speaking of her past life as an Egyptian priestess named Om Seti. Having the uncanny ability to recall the near-perfect detail of the regal city that once was, Edie is credited with providing Egyptian archaeologists with an inside look at history, one that most people wouldn't believe possible. How was she able to pinpoint the exact location of so many ancient buried sites near Abydos? And is there any truth to the tragic life she claimed to have once lived? Join us for this installment of the Supernatural Tendencies podcast, where we'll explore the life of Om Seti, Dorothy Edie, and unearth the details that make up this fascinating story of reincarnation. And stick around after the show for this week's Musician Spotlight, this week featuring Rest for the Wicked. I'm Christy. And this is Alex. And this is Episode 20, Dorothy Edie, the Reincarnated Egyptian Priestess, Om Seti. Dorothy Eady was born in 1904 to lower middle-class Christian parents, and by all accounts, she was the apple of her mother and father's eye. A playful child, Dorothy basked in exploring the family's two-story home. It was during one of these childhood trysts in 1907, when the young girl was only three years old, that she fell down the staircase, plummeting to her death. The town physician was called, and after examining the lifeless child, the determination was confirmed that young Dorothy had passed away. Upon receiving the tragic news, the couple and the doctor returned to where the child's body lay and were shocked to find young Dorothy sitting up and playing with her toys as if nothing had happened. This began a life shrouded in mystery and awe, and a woman's quest to relive the life she once knew. Dorothy would exclaim often to her parents that she wanted to go home and would speak of her former abode as being constructed of massive columns that appeared to her in her dreams. Her bewildered parents were at a loss for a reason behind the nightly occurrences, and in an attempt to divert the child's attention to something more positive, took her to visit the British Museum when little Dorothy was four years old. It was during this trip that an excited Dorothy remembered who she really was. Having tore away from her mother's hold, she ran to the great statues that filled the Egyptian gallery and began kissing the feet. The Temple of Seti, now long lost to history, was recalled in vivid detail by the child, who spoke of lush gardens full of trees and exotic flowers. Seti I, pharaoh of the 19th dynasty of the New Kingdom period, and also father of Ramesses II, was the focus of Dorothy's attention, and soon enough, she would remember why. It was as if her fall down the stairs transformed her. A once quiet and well-reserved child, Dorothy grew to be outspoken in her beliefs. Raised as Christian, 
she now took severe offense at a Sunday school teacher for comparing the religion to, quote, heathen ancient Egyptian worship of numerous gods and was expelled for refusing to take part in singing a religious hymn that beseeched God to, quote, curse the swart Egyptians. Dorothy's thirst for knowledge on anything related to ancient Egypt, especially hieroglyphics, consumed her, and she spent a great deal of time scouring the museum and its massive walls. At the age of 15, she appealed to eminent Egyptologist Cy E.A. Wallace Budge to tutor her, and seeing the excitement the young girl held, was more than happy to take her under his proverbial wing. It was during this period in her life that Dorothy began having dream visitations from Seti I, where it was revealed to her that she was in fact the reincarnation of Om Seti, high priestess and lover of the Egyptian pharaoh. This news, coupled with bouts of sleepwalking and resistance of rules and other forms of disciplinary measures, afforded the young girl time in multiple sanatoriums, but to no avail. She was steadfast in her belief that she was in fact the long-dead priestess. Enrolling part-time at nearby Plymouth Art School, Dorothy acquired every piece of affordable Egyptian antiquity that she could, amassing sizable amounts of ancient relics. She also held the lead role of Isis in a play performed by the school's theater group, where she sang the lamentation for Osiris's death, strangely fitting for the reincarnated lover of the pharaoh Seti I. At the age of 27, Dorothy was offered a position at a London public relations magazine and jumped at the chance to travel. Her new job found her writing in support of an independent Egypt and drawing cartoons that reflected her political views. She developed a loyal following, including future husband Iman Abdel Megid, an English student from Egypt. The couple married in 1931 and returned to Megid's homeland, where Edie proclaimed that never again would she leave. Living in Cairo, the couple welcomed a son, Seti, paying homage to Edie's former lover. By all accounts, the marriage was strained due to Dorothy's obsession with her past life and the memories she had longed to once again relive. By the end of 1931, Megid had taken a teaching job in Iraq, and the marriage was dissolved, with Dorothy maintaining custody of the couple's only child. This newfound freedom afforded Edie the ability to become totally immersed in her reprised role of priestess. She reportedly was well known for her magical potions and spells, and eclectic personality. But perhaps her most impressive feat was being able to charm snakes, in particular a pet cobra a power she carried over into this life that was common in ancient Egyptian literature. Dorothy was observed regularly visiting the 5th Dynasty Pyramid of Unas, where she took offerings of food and wine, being sure to take off her shoes as was customary in Egyptian tradition. It was during these visits that she reported having an out-of-body experience and making contact with the apparition known as Hor-Ra. Translated to Dorothy over a 12-month period in her dreams, she was drip-fed pieces of her former life. She recalled having been born to humble parents in ancient Egypt during the reign of Seti I, 1290 BCE to 1279 BCE, and being named Bentrishit. After her mother died when she was three, the young girl was left with a father who was unable to care for and afford her. She was taken to the temple of Qom el-Sultan, where she grew up, educated to assume the position of high priestess. 
At the age of 12, the young girl was delivered before the high priest, where she was given a choice to leave the commune and venture out into the world, or to stay at the temple and become a consecrated virgin. Not having an understanding of what this entailed, the naive girl made the decision to accept the vows. Bantrishit was tutored to assume her role in the yearly dramatic theater of Osiris' Passion and Resurrection, an illustrious role that only a high priestess, who was consecrated to Isis, could perform, a role that she would carry through many lifetimes. As chance would have it, Bantrishit would soon find herself the object of study of the first's affection, and although punishable by death, the two became lovers. Upon finding herself with child and unwilling to bring shame to her love and face humiliation at public inquest, Bentrisha decided instead to take her life, as well as the life of her unborn child. In 1938, Dorothy moved to Naslet al-Saman, near the Giza pyramids, where she caught the attention of Egyptian archaeologist Salim Hassan of the Department of Antiquities. She went on to become Hassan's personal secretary, penning numerous articles and essays on the subject of ancient Egyptian history, and acting as an English translator, becoming a respected author and teacher to Egyptian scholars. Edie was the first female to be employed by the museum, and her contribution toward Hassan's work earned her special mention in his magnum opus, the ten-volume Excavations at Giza. A perfect partnership was formed, one that allowed Edie to learn the techniques of archaeology and an opportunity to share her knowledge of ancient drawings and hieroglyphs. On excavations, Dorothy would continually shock archaeologists when time after time she would insist they dig at certain precise spots, saying, quote, dig here. I remember an ancient garden was here. And sure enough, she was always right. Edie was also reported to regularly have dreams where the apparition of Seti I came to her, as well as more memories from her past life as Bentrishit. These instances were recorded in her private diary, which was kept secret until her death, along with the details of her mystic meetings with the pharaoh. She lovingly wrote that, quote, His majesty drops by for a moment, but couldn't stay. He was hosting a banquet in Amenti, heaven. Edie's often eccentric nature was overlooked by her peers, and the accuracy of her claims made them believers in what she was experiencing. In 1951, Dorothy joined the staff of Professor Ahmad Fakhri at Dashur and assisted in the excavation of the great Memphite necropolis, where her insight and secret knowledge proved to be invaluable. Edie achieved her dream of returning to Abydos in 1956, stating, quote, I have only one aim in life, and that was to go to Abydos, to live in Abydos, and to be buried in Abydos. Retiring from Cochrane's staff in 1969 at the age of 65, she continued to live in the impoverished village of Araba el Mufuna near Abydos, a source of inspiration among its people. Living in a rudimentary mud-brick house, Dorothy existed on a meager pension of $30 a month, her diet consisting of mint tea, holy water, and dog vitamins. The once high priestess now spent her days creating needlepoint embroideries of her beloved Egyptian gods and selling them to tourists passing through. Although her son, Seti, beseeched his mother to join him and his family in Kuwait, she declined, 
stating that she was determined to live out her days in her true home. Om Seti, or Mother of Seti, as she became known, was a regular fixture at the temple, and passed her days spinning tales of its ancient glory to tourists and visiting archaeologists. One in particular named James P. Allen of the American Research Center in Cairo was quoted as saying, I don't know of an American archaeologist in Egypt who doesn't respect her. Her later years found her in declining health after suffering a heart attack, a broken knee, phlebitis, and dysentery. But as she looked back on her life, she insisted it was all worth it, and she wouldn't change a thing. Dorothy Edie, mother of Seti, high priestess, and respected archaeologist and teacher, passed away on April 12, 1981, in her simple mud-brick home. In keeping with ancient tradition, her tomb was erected at the western side of her garden, and a statue of Isis, wings outstretched, watches over her. Edie's contributions to modern archaeology were vast, and according to the late John A. Wilson, head of the Oriental Institute, as well as being called the Dean of American Egyptology by his peers. Her esteemed place as a responsible scholar is well-deserved. Carl Sagan once described Om Seti as, quote, a lively, dedicated woman who made real contributions to Egyptology. This is true whether her belief in reincarnation is fact or fantasy. He went on to dismiss Edie's gifts, saying that her memories were simply childhood fantasies carried over into adulthood. Many might offhandedly agree, without being given further details, one would be prone to assume that she was some type of quack. But as her confidants are quick to point out, mental illness or delusional fantasies bear no weight when attempting to validate them. Ohm said he was right. Not once, not twice, but consistently. Leaving one to ponder the question, is there such a thing as life after death? Dorothy Edie believed so and gave numerous accounts of having remembered one of hers. All because of Daryl. Thanks, Daryl. I hope the trip to Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop was worth it. <laughs> he said he was going to be back by 2. He's a liar. It's currently 128 and, and ain't no way he's going to be back in time. Daryl isn't trusted. Oh, man. Not trusted at all. No, because when it comes to fishing uh, or fishing equipment. He's not even buying anything. I know. I don't get it. I know. And here we are recording today. I'm pretty sure he was a woman in a past life. We're not going to get into that. Because he loves to shop. We're not going to get into that. But we're here recording today. And... We are talking about past lives. Oh, I guess so. Touche, my friend. Touche. Touche. First off, we want to start, I want to start, by apologizing for the two-week hiatus we had taken. Um, Different combination of things here. I had a augmented work schedule, which um, became kind of heavy and hectic across the weekend uh and then of course the holidays kind of set us back a little bit so um we do apologize for not giving any, anyone a, a heads up beforehand um it wasn't planned obviously it was, crazy. it was anarchy yeah it wasn't planned we wanted to still do some shows throughout the holiday so 
But we're back on track. We're back. We're back. Back with a vengeance. Yes. Look at Oh, he's looking at us. He's like, who's back? Back in the shadow looking. Beebs likes to partake in the podcast experience along oh. with Oscar. Did you know that in my live um, readings that I do on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, Oscar now has a fan club? Oh. Okay. Yeah. No, really, because I was doing a show the other night and I seen two people. One asked, where's Oscar? <laughs> and then another person said, uh, telling the other people that were watching, mm-hmm. you have to watch for Oscar, her cat. He's so funny. <laughs> so Oscar oh, has no. a following now. Maybe we'll start an Instagram for Oscar. Just for him and all of his... Craziness. Escapades. Yeah, so if you guys uh, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, uh, Christy does a uh, Facebook Live, and she does it all the time. Sometimes they're kind of spontaneous. Other times they are scheduled for uh, readings. She does a... Free readings on whoever she may be drawn to in the chat there, and so uh, if you uh, want to get on that, how can how can they get on that? They can like and follow me on Facebook at Christy Johnson Sadler, the paranormal hypnotist. Ta-da! I like saying that. Uh, well, anyway, we've okay. plugged you. We've plugged you. Let's move on. Okay. We're done with the food. We're done with bashing. We're Darryl. not done with the food because there hasn't been any food. I know he needs to. I'm hurry. living on a half-eaten three musketeers and some stale chips yeah. at this point. <laughs> okay. I'm, a li- I'm a little cranky. So we're getting on with today's episode, which is Dorothy Edie. Dorothy Edie. And you love this past live. I do. These past live stories. You have begrudgingly avoided this case. I haven't. Kind of. Because of our two-week hiatus. I still, I, I'm still, I'm just calling it like I see it. And it seems like an avoidance to me. It's not. So we have um, Dorothy Edie. And as a quick summation, when she was a child, she actually... Now, was she clinically pronounced dead after falling down the well, flight mean, of stairs? I mean, as clinically as they can diagnose it in 1901, I, I guess. guess. Well, I guess it was like 1904. 1907. 1907. 1907. Okay, yeah. but, but of course, I mean, they've buried, yep. they've buried live people in the late 1800s. Dead so. as a door now. She she was taking a nap. Like she just got tired from falling downstairs. That would be a hell of a malpractice, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh wait, wait, no, she's back in the game. She's, she's all right. She's, she's all good. right. And I'm gonna one up you. She is now an Egyptian priestess. Huh. Look at that. And she talks fourteen different languages. That's gonna be an upcharge. Yeah. So you're welcome. So there we go. So we we got right into we got right into it. So she fell down a flight of stairs. Throw the other kids down. No, I'm just kidding. Don't don't. Oh my god! Anybody throw your kids down a stairs? We need a Roman emperor. What's wrong with you? And we need Napoleon back for some odd reason. Wow. Gosh. So she falls down the stairs, pronounced dead. And I believe the story that you had researched said that the doctor pronounced her dead. Yes. And then went to go tell her parents as tell such. Her parents. And they came back. Yeah. And she was up like playing with toys, playing with toys on the bed. Now, here's my question. They're in England in 1907. She falls down the stairs. So did they take her to her bedroom and then the doctor came to the house? They didn't go to a hospital? Well, apparently not. Okay. I just want to I just wanted to know where the toys came from. Well, they were in her bedroom. Oh, I guess I'm out of the loop with how she fell down the stairs and they probably took her in and laid her on her bed, called the doctor. Why is this so difficult? <laughs> I feel like there needs to be an ambulance in 1907. (laughs) They had fire brigades, so didn't they have some type of ambulance system? I don't think they had an emergency service (laughs) 
plan in place at the time. <laughs> so the doctor, right? Doctor freaking, I don't know, jerk off comes in, walks in the door, goes, yep, dead. All right, see you guys. What? What? I think he was, it said he he went back, you know, he told the parents, and then he went back in to, you know, grab the body to take it. And oh, he's going to take the body. Well, no, they're just going to leave it there. Well, they didn't take it to the hospital, wow. obviously. Well, no, it's a little too late for that. But but now, now you got, you have a doctor in the position that's tantamount to a weatherman. Are you ever going to believe that doctor again? Probably not, no. He comes out, like, dead, ooh. dead, nope. Then goes back in, see, she's clearly... Oh, George, you really need to see a doc. Never mind. Never mind. Handle <laughs> it on. Get that. some honey. I don't believe that, doctor. Honey and chili peppers. So he comes back in the room and Dorothy's playing with her toys on the bed. Yeah. And was something amiss right off the bat or was it when they went to the museum? Um, No, they started noticing personality changes in her. Mm. And like I said, she started speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the same child. And so they ended up going to this museum, and she just freaked out and kept saying, I'm home, I'm home. Hmm. And What languages was she speaking? You said 14? Was that, was that a, did you just blow that number up just for the How sake of the story? How long have you known me? Like, long I'm enough literally to you. all of your entire life, 14 is my yeah. go-to number. So how many languages was she speaking? I don't know. I think it was like three or four. Three Egyptian. or four? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... It, feasibly, she could have spoken the languages. Now, jump. I'm I'm going to jump ahead for a split second so I can ask the question. But feasibly, if she was an ancient Egyptian priestess, what four languages would she need to know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I just I have a I just have so many questions about that. Get off my instance. island. I don't because, like you right now. <laughs> I feel like you're just attacking. Because what? We we didn't know how to decipher hieroglyphs for the longest time, and I'm not sure if there's a correlation because I haven't done a deep dive on ancient you know Egyptology or anything like that. But we vaguely know, at least we think we know, how to read hieroglyphs. Are the hieroglyphs a spoken language as well? Like sometimes there's a differentiation, especially with old, like Babylonian and cuneiform. You know, I don't know. Have you heard of cuneiform before? Yeah. The first like the first actual written language which was just used it was written used like a stick like a flat yeah tip stick and you would basically just like put a line and you put a line on top or a line on bottom or however make different variations of just essentially lines that you poke in the clay and we i think we know how to read cuneiform but is that an actual spoken language i don't know so that's i don't know it seems weird she knows four languages and we just now learn how to read hieroglyphs. I don't know. Okay, so we can move. We can move on. We're we're coming back. Let's come back, come back, and then we go to the British Museum. Yes. Okay. So she comes out of her n- not death, which we're gonna say is near death experience, even though we have a questionable malpractice suit involved. Yes. Um, and they end up taking her to the British Museum, which is known yeah. for their Egyptology. Department, yeah, right, yeah. Um, England was really fascinated. I guess a whole year. Yeah, there was a whole period where everything Egyptian was like Howard Carter. Cool. cool. Yep, Howard Carter. I believe in the twenties when he discovered uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, and she instantly took to a lot of this stuff. And you had said correct, yes, that this was home. Yes. 
Okay, so carry us on from here. So this happens, and then what's next? So from there, she was obsessed with everything Egyptian. So she spent all of her free time at the um, British Museum, looking through the halls and just really scouring any books or anything she could find on Egyptian history. Okay. Uh, And she became pretty well versed in it. So then skip forward uh, to, I can't remember the guy's name. Oh, when she was 16? Yeah. And she kind of, he kind of takes her under his wing and, and she blossoms, you know. That sounds dirty. Well, I don't know how else to say it. What do I say? She excelled. There you go. Excelled. I wanted to get away from that. In this Egyptian Mm. study. Yeah. Yeah. So the Egyptologist basically pulls an Aladdin on her and thinks she's a diamond in the rough. And that's when she officially kind of starts the active career. Yeah. All right. So before this, it was just like a fascination. Yeah. Bordering on oddity because of the things she's kind of talking about and how quickly she was taken to it. And then at one point, does she go get to go to Egypt? Uh, I believe it's with her husband. She gets married. She has a child. They have a child. Sorry. And uh, that Egypt is actually her husband's homeland. Mm-hmm. So they go there, and that's when she says, you know, I'm never leaving Egypt again. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically Abydos. That's right, yeah. Because she claimed that in her past life, that's where she lived. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, so now we have, and I'm not sure if this is where this happens or if it happens slightly before that, where she gives the actual story of her previous life where she gets pretty particular. And yeah. what was what was her name? Om Seti. Yeah, but what was the, the re- beer beer shit? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, look at beer shit. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, we're the gonna beer shit. <laughs> she's gonna know. make fun of her right now and call her beer shits. We've had problems with this name the whole time here. Oh, uh, you know how many times it took us to actually record that name in seriousness? Three or four. <laughs> Something like that. Bench shit. That's what it was. That's what it was. Bench. That's can't, what it was. Still well, can't she do was, it. She was having these dreams um, where she was drip fed this information um, over the course of, I think it was a year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just drew a blank. I seen that. I seen your face go. <laughs> you just left. <laughs> left. So as. Bentrishit would have been her, like, her real name. Yeah. And then she eventually became the priestess in which her name was changed to Om Seti. Yeah. Which and, Om Seti means mother of Seti. Which is weird because didn't... Okay, what was her what was her lover's name? Was that Seti the First, right? Seti the First, correct. So she fell in love with Seti the First, but then her name is mother of Seti. Is there some incestual things going on? No, she became... Uh, oh, mother of Set. Yeah. Like the god Set. Well, she has a child named Seti. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, seriously? No, but that was after she didn't have, because she killed her unborn child in this past yeah. life. But Dorothy Edie, the person, uh, when she was married, had a son. They had a son and named him Seti. Now I'm confused. So she, in real life, she had a son. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. So she became known as Om Seti, mother oh, of Seti. In re- in, okay, in reality, but in her past life, she was never known as Om Seti. She was known as Bentrishit. Bentrishit. Bentr- I'm not even going to say it again. I can't even do it. I can't. <laughs> Come on. Come on, Dorothy. Help us out. 
So <laughs> let's move on quickly. Segue. Move on um, <laughs> quickly. So she ends up uh, going into in her in her past life. She was uh, that name, and she gets into the the priestesshood, the convent essentially for for ancient Egyptian religious followers. Yeah, and she from the narrative says she naively accepts these vows upon given the choice. Yeah. So she does it and then uh she falls in love with uh, with Pharaoh Seti the first. Yeah. And they become lovers. And we I think we mentioned that Seti the first was the father of Ramses the second. Yeah. Because I think it went Ramses the first, he had Seti the first, who in turn had Ramses the second. So confusing. And a lot of our listeners may know who are at least versed in the Old Testament. Ramses the second is is the Pharaoh commonly attributed to the Exodus and the Moses narrative. Yeah. So with all the t- you know ten plagues of Egypt and and all that good stuff, that was Ramses the second. So Dorothy Eady is saying that Bentershit would have been the generation before, essentially. Yeah. With 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 Pharaoh Seti, so they fall in love and eventually she becomes pregnant. And since this was just deeply frowned upon, because especially back in the Egyptian, you know, uh, new new kingdoms and then the old kingdoms and stuff like that, a lot of incest did happen yeah. because because the concept was is that if you were at the higher echelon of society, hence you were closer to the gods, thus becoming a god yourself when you were pharaoh, you want to keep your blood pure by having children with the same pure bloodline, and who could be any more pure than your own family. Yeah. So that was the idea. Uh, so this would not have been good for Bencher shit and Seti the first. No. <laughs> so, so as opposed to uh, carry the child to term and kind of ruin Seti the first name, as well as incur humiliation herself, she kills herself and thus also her unborn child. Yes. And so, that is where her past life kind of stopped and, for the yeah. most part. And then, obviously, now we come to Dorothy Eady. So that was the whole story she really told about this past life that she had had, that she was that she had woken up with or had the real, realization of after she had, quote unquote, died. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Do you have thoughts on this part? Because I know you're really into this kind of thing. Do you have anything to add specifically before we move on in the chronological timeline. Uh, no, carry on. Carrying on. Okay, so she goes to Egypt with her husband, and they, of course, have the child, and they, they name the child Seti. Yeah. Um, it, the marriage didn't last long. I think no. within the year that they were married, he yeah. ends up uh, getting a job, I think, as a teacher. Yeah. And he ends up moving to uh, Iraq, Iraq, right? And they divorce. And they divorce. But then this opens her up, so she can do... All of her Whatever stuff she that she wants, wants she, what she wants to do. Yeah. And so she starts working closely with the Egyptologists there in, in Egypt. And this is where the story kind of picks up for us. Uh, because with some of these stories, and, and, and this is with a lot of our stories that we do, you know, if, how can we say this? How can I say this without being accusatory? Because this is like the bread and butter of what makes a believer or a skeptic for the most part in that you have like a, a verifiable set of evidences. Is that a word set of evidence? Whatever. Sure, We'll go with it. Okay. That either helps or hurts your case. Yeah. Right. So 
like in a like in a paranormal investigation for you know apparitions or spirits or stuff like that, the the set of the set of extra criteria for you know making one a believer or a skeptic would be noises or things people see or photos captured stuff like that, right? So you yeah. would be able to refer back to to the set of set of instances and decide for yourself whether or not you know there's their validity to it or it could have been the wind or a radiator knocking or something like that. In this case. This is some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Because if you did not believe a word she said about her past life experiences, she was just a crazy, a crazy lady who bumped her head and it was just a miracle that she didn't become a serial killer as opposed to just saying that she had this. Right. So it's just the crazy Mrs. Edie down the street. What makes this story absolutely incredible is what happens when she's helping these Egyptologists in, in Egypt at this time. And it starts like, a, like what we say, 1931? Yeah. Or 1939? Uh, yeah. 1939. Uh, from there on until until her death, I think, in 19... Was it 82? I believe so. Around there, right offhand. I'm not looking at my notes. Screw notes. Who needs notes? Who needs them anyway? We don't need them. Um, she actively participates in helping in the archaeological discoveries. And when we say participates... She was actively directing. She was where responsible to dig. for. Yeah, she from what from our knowledge, she wasn't going through some type of gnome schematic and kind of making like a formulaic decision on this is how most of the um, temples, courtyards, whatever that they may be looking at are usually set up back then. So let's look here because that's how they're set up in I don't I'm just Giza or wherever else. So let's look here in this location because that's generally how they're set up. No, she would say, I remember this, dig right here for this thing. And sure enough, yeah. It well, would be there. Well they actually weren't having much luck. Um and then Dorothy kind of came along and she like you said, she said, dig here, right here, because I remember a garden. And they dig and they found. And it was like that continuously yeah, i don't this think that she was ever wrong this isn't one a one-off thing yeah where either she could have just had a really good guess which if you're in the middle of the desert i mean because some of these places are in the fertile the fertile um tributaries of egypt as you go into the upper nile it becomes less and less kind of fertile outside of the certain area outside of of the actual river watershed so it's not now I lost how I was going to go about that, but it, it it wasn't a one-off guess. It wasn't like she went out and magically, oh, that's right, magically guessed a spot to yeah. dig. And it also wasn't where she could just go out in the middle of the night, dig something, find something kind of little, covered up, and go, hey, by the way, I think we should dig here because this is what I remember. That's None of those answers are feasible yeah. in her situation, let alone the fact that she had done it multiple, multiple, multiple times. Yeah. And given such... Such information and valuable finds, if you would, to the archaeological community of of the day and of the area. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like that, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is uh, Carl Sagan Mm -hmm. was absolutely convinced that she was able to do this because of childhood fantasies Mm. that she would make up Mm -hmm. well you know that seems absolutely absurd to me because Mm -hmm. no childhood fantasy that you can create is going to allow you to like you were just saying go out into the middle of the the desert there and exactly pinpoint 
these ancient buried sites. Mm-hmm. There's no way that it, no. Yeah, can we can we back up just a, a half a step? I don't know if I'm done hating on Carl Sagan yet. Well, I wanted to explain if if our listeners did not are not familiar with Carl Sagan, who he is or what he does. I believe. Okay, first off, Carl Sagan is an astronomer, an astrobiologist, among a litany of other titles that he has. And I thought at first, wasn't he like a believer in a lot of that stuff? And then he flipped, like fervently flipped the other way or something like that. Regardless, if you hear about Carl Sagan in most paranormal uh, topics, it's probably going to be from a skeptic's point of view. And not just a normal skeptic. Carl Sagan is regarded as, I think, one of the smartest people of the past 50 years. And he he would go out of his way to kind of put in commentary with a lot of stuff. He was very science based. Yes. Very. um, If he couldn't see it and understand it, then he didn't believe in it. mm -hmm. And and it's not I don't want to come off as as talking bad about Carl Sagan, because I want to make sure that we we always have that dialogue of a Carl Sagan and of the opposite, because I think it's the happy medium that will gain us our best results for any of the topics we discuss. Yeah. And I can understand that. But sometimes you have a Carl Sagan and he's always the, well, what about this? What yeah. About, what about yeah. This? And, and he was very, cause he had, he had since passed away. I think he passed away in 1996. Um, he was very much about the scientific method and being able to achieve results um, through experimentation and being able to repeat those results and that kind of is the ever-present issue with a lot of paranormal research and studies is that if we could reproduce the results then you know on a, on a very you know stringent basis then a lot of this conversation probably wouldn't be happening so already there's an inherent issue that carl sagan had with that so whatever we bring up and i'm sure with we're, we're gonna bring up carl sagan again um because he did have a lot of commentary on religion and everything else. I think yeah. he was, I think he had, there was one quote that he had had, and I'm going to, I'm trying to paraphrase, that he had said that a lot of people believe that God is this long haired Caucasian male in the sky who tallies every drop of a, every sparrow or something like that. Yeah. And if one were to believe that God were a set of principles that the universe works around, then he could believe in God. Because that's what essentially God is to him, is the rules in which the universe operates. And if we could understand that, that is the true God. So he, he would always, well, I should say always, nine times out of ten, oppose the view of a spirituality surrounding yeah. it. It was, like a, it was like the universal mechanics he was more involved in. Mm-hmm. And that lack of understanding by humanity is what creates a spiritual side of God. So... Yes, he said he did believe in God if God were put within the framework of astrophys- astrophysics, basically. So, you don't care for Mr. Sagan. Let's move on, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's why, though, right? I mean, I think we can... I, I think you have to look at it from all areas. I think he was very narrow-minded in his views of a spiritual consciousness, a universal consciousness. Yeah. Um. But I think he was very good at the science aspect of it. Um, but it's that narrow-mindedness that annoys me yeah. about yeah. him. And, man, how it's interesting that a scientist could be considered narrow-minded. I'm not sure I would necessarily necessarily agree with the narrow-mindedness. but You're going to agree with it or I'll pummel you. <laughs> I can't agree 
to the fact that he had a pretty stringent rules of, of satisfaction and they had to fall within the scientific method. And if you can't repeat your results, then there's there can't be any actual formulaic resolve with any issue. So that was that was his main and, main And, main you know, thing. especially for this case, because this is, you know, one of the better cases, uh, better known cases of reincarnation. But, uh, you know, I really don't see how you can disclaim because she is responsible for so many advances in Egyptology and um, discovering these ancient sites. Uh, she was also very prolific, um, even having her limited education that she had. She was uh, responsible for a good part of the the Egyptologists being able to um, decipher the hieroglyphics. Yeah. So... You know, how do you take someone who has very little education and bring them in? They're like, oh, mm-hmm. well, that says eat at Joe's. Mm-hmm. Duh. Yeah. And, you know, when I first heard like the the, the outline of the story, the first thing I thought of especially would be the uh, the time frame that she grew up in. Yeah. And especially her locality of being in England and their very heavy fascination with, with ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. It, from a skeptic's point of view, it wouldn't be a far step to say, well, yeah, of course she would be inclined to have an affinity for this because of not only the time which she was she was growing up and the advancements that were being made but also her area now to me if she were to say that i was some sri lankan priestess that seems a little more odd you know because because of it being a entirely different area of interest to the mass public but this being the case that was my first thought of it It was like yeah well i mean she came back and she has this crazy obsession with ancient Egypt, but so did the entirety of England of the time. Well, so yeah, it's not true. crazy like that. But after getting into the story, I mean, man, how how much more verifiable evidence can you have of something at least mm-hmm. being amiss in that she could direct exactly where to dig and have, have finds found? <laughs> yeah. And so, she was very committed to her beliefs, too. Um, you know, like, what did it say in her final years? She lived on $30 a month, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And she ended up, you know, dying, like she said. She ended up dying But that, yeah, in that area. And and she was determined that she was, you know, because her, her son and his, and his family even said, hey, come live with us. Mm-hmm. That was you Kuwait, know. correct? I believe so, yeah. yeah which... come, come live with us. You know, we'll take care of you. And she's like, nope. Yeah. I'm staying right here in Abydos. Yeah. So she was very committed to it. Yeah, it se- it seems like it, and like I said, uh, usually I'm on the fence with a lot of stuff, and I don't, I can't really. Ugh. You can't argue. No, you can't. I don't you think. Can't. I don't think anyone really can that something's very odd and mysterious about this case. Whether or not you think it actually is a past life or not, how was she able to find these things and, and attain the information she did? Yeah. With a litany of experts uh, already in the area. Yeah, she you know? taught them. Yeah. So, so that, that's amazing. That is. So if I were to be on the fence, I would be clinging to it. Barely. Still on the side. Yeah, barely on yeah. the side of of belief. And they all, all of the Egyptologists and archaeologists of that time, um, she, she was well respected by all of them. Mm-hmm. They all had yeah. no doubt that, you know, we don't know how she knows this information, but she does. Yep. So who really cares? Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you have people, when you have professionals of the genre saying, mm-hmm. yep, we don't know either, but she gets results. <laughs> and that's what we're going with. Yep. So, so it is thanks to her, yeah. largely, that we have all of the information that we have now. Not all, I would say. Well, I mean, all of the information that we have now. Yeah. 
is largely because of her. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything else to add of interest to this? I just don't like Carl Sagan. Oh, man, back to Carl Sagan. I'm still hungry. Yeah, me too. Daryl's still... It is... I've done eating the candy bar, the half-eaten candy bar from last night. Oh, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And some stale chips. Did you have a soda pop? Yeah. And a soda and a half a soda pop. Yep. <laughs> God, it's, it's terrible. I'm gonna waste away to nothing here. Two things I want to request from our listeners this week. If you have anything to add, whether or not it's a personal opinion or additional information, if you have to have any about Miss Dorothy Edie, email us or comment on our group. We have the Supernatural Tendencies group that you can become a part of. Post it in there what you think about this episode, on about the information. The second thing I want to ask of you is uh, I want you to try to get a hold of Daryl, review everywhere you can, tell him that we're hungry. And I don't care if this does come out three days from now. I, don't I want care. you. I'm I, just so hungry right now. I don't even care. I want you to inundate his, his everything that he has social media wise, and just 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 pummel him, pummel him for My it. My blood sugar's dropping. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, that we really don't push a whole lot. I think we push a little bit. But uh, looking over our our listens and stuff like that, we really want to get some more people, you know, actively listening, and we can do that. Um, a little more quickly, if if all of our listeners who uh, would would be wonderful if they would uh, go on Apple, uh, the iTunes, and give us a give us a review. If you think it's five stars, I want you to give five stars. But uh, I'm the type of person that I'm pretty pretty honest. If you don't want to give us five five stars, fine. Uh, just tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we're doing right. And then if you leave a five star review for us and a good review, that kind of pushes it up in the uh, the Apple algorithms for us. Gets uh, more ears on this thing so if you could do that for us be greatly appreciated yes and jump on over if you're a fan of facebook jump on over and join our group on facebook supernatural tendencies you'll find uh i think we do like six posts a day on different informational uh different different information on paranormal topics so you'll find lots of cool stuff in there. Yep. So if one podcast a week is just not enough for you, become a part of our pod, uh, of our podcast group there, and we got some stuff for you throughout yeah. the week too. So. And you can connect with us also right there in the group. Yep. yep. And we're, we're that group is growing. I think that group has more people in it that we do likes, which is baffling me. So if you're in the group, damn it, give us a like on our Facebook page, the actual podcast page. Come you, on now. You do it. Give me, give me, just give me a break. Ugh. And be sure and invite your friends. Yeah, do that too. I think we have, I don't know, what, two or three people added a day? Something like that, yeah. So we're growing. We're Just growing. Help us grow faster and make this family a little bit bigger. Yeah. And I that's all I got. That's it. All right, we are outie. We'd like to say thank you one more time for hopping on board with us this week. If you have any comments, questions, critiques, or suggestions for new topics, please send us an email at supernaturaltendenciespodcast at gmail.com. We also encourage you to get over to our Facebook page at Supernatural Tendencies Podcast and go ahead and elbow drop that like button for us. We're also available on Instagram at Supernatural Tendencies Podcast and Twitter at Weird and Scary, if that's more to your liking. Please pass us around to your friends as well where they can find us on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. And remember, if you're having any type of paranormal activity or extraterrestrial contact. I offer private coaching online via Skype or Facebook Messenger to assist you with those issues. 
Feel free to visit me at christyjohnsonsadler.com for contact information. Till next time, this has been Alex. And Christy. See you later. <laughs> back again. Again. Burning the midnight oil. Right after the show. After all the credits have rolled, and after all the music is played, and after you've stopped talking, here we are again. After I've stopped talking? Yeah. Wow, that wasn't very nice. It wasn't, but it's I was fine. even nice to you for this episode. You were not nice at all. How was I not nice? Because not everybody heard the cuts that I made for it. So therefore, they didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Did they happen? I have the first cut master of this. Did they happen? You could have an extra release. Anyway, we are now here for the Musician Spotlight. Thank you for sticking around. And you know who else is thanking you for sticking around? Rest for the Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> Your eyes got like huge. You're like, do you know? Rest for the Wicked. Well, I don't know. You're kind of scaring me. <laughs> All right, so this band got a hold of us, wanted to be featured, and we said, hell yes. Rest for the Wicked uh, out of, I think it said Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which I believe we have some family from around that area. Yep. If I'm right, I think Six Lights is around Mount Mount Pleasant. Um, Rest for the Wicked is, I would describe them as a refreshing rebreathing of what the late 90s, early 2000s, like radio rock. I'm digging them. Right? Um, yeah. Like, like a puddle of mud, a fuel, I dare say Creed, but people probably just collectively went, oh, and I don't care. God. I don't care. Who knows it? I still don't like Creed. I do. I think Mark Tremonti is one of the most underrated guitar players of all time, and I'm not afraid to say it, and thusly, Alterbridge as well. So if you dig that stuff, I can almost guarantee that you're going to dig Rest for the Wicked. Because they're doing it, they're doing it right. I know who else you like that would, but I wouldn't want to embarrass you. Who that I like? Yeah. Who? I'll say it. Say it. The Carpenters. Actually, I, I don't really listen to a lot of Carpenters. You do. No. Muskrat Susie. That's that is not the Carpenters. Or no, Cap- <gasps> and I Captain, won. And, and Captain and Teal. It's That's Captain what I and meant. Teal. That's what I meant. Yeah. Oh. Captain and Tennille. There is no more Captain anymore though because he died. I don't care. You you lost. Well, that, I was thinking Carpenters. You, but don't I meant even Captain backtrack. And don't even backtrack. Oh please! Like I didn't know who sang Muskrat Susie. Yeah, you, know, you said the Carpenters. Muskrat you called Sam. out the Carpenters first. Anyway, what did Muskrat Susie and Muskrat Sam do? Jitterbug in Muskrat Land. You're damn right they do. <laughs> but right let's, now we're gonna jam to. Let's get back to Rest for the Wicked. Rest I for do the believe wicked. they have. Uh, I just see one show so far. They were pretty busy. In October, they had I think they had a show in December, but now they have one January 10th, along with WTI and Blind Riots and RFTW. I have cool. no idea what those... I guess WTI is West for the Wicked. No? I'm dumb. I don't even know anymore. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> the, I won. I won. <laughs> I don't know acronyms. <laughs> uh, they will be playing in uh, Saginaw, Michigan up there, and I'm going to give my hockey shout-out of the week to the Saginaw Spirit. 
So if Rest for the Wicked gets up there and they want to get me a Saginaw Spirit shirt along with a Rest for the Wicked shirt, go ahead and send it right on down here to Ohio for me. be greatly appreciated. If not, it's fine either way. Um, but with the song they gave us uh, for today would be Hangman. So one last time. Rest for the Wicked, Hangman. <laughs> Say it's time to go now As I walk on the stage 